0: To some, the concept of right and wrong is black and white. To others, it is a continuous spectrum of gray. How do you determine your moral values as a Jesus follower? Here's Dr. Parlo and Pastor Ben.
1: Welcome back to When Fear Reigns. We're uh, going through episode eight here, and we're really going to be talking about the issue of morality. How do I know what's right? My name is Ben Workentine. Uh, I'm hosting and I'm sitting here with John Parlow. We're going to be digging into this topic because this idea of right and wrong. How do you, how does a person come to a conclusion about what is right? What is wrong? Critical, especially in our culture, our society today. Um, Where there seems to be no
0: stop signs. Yeah. Anybody's morality anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: the laws are being passed almost on a daily basis. We're being challenged by things like AI. I mean, it's just incredible. How do we get to those points? How do we get to those conclusions? Man, looking forward to this conversation today. But before we get into it, uh, John, why don't you? Uh, I got a question for you. Uh, Want to hear your thoughts? What did you a- did you
0: ask me this question oh. ahead of time, or is this just out of the blue now?
1: This is this is
0: actually it's not an out of the blue question. Okay, yeah. What's
1: a what's a podcast you're listening to? that oh, you're, okay. you're loving.
0: I uh, I would say Tom Rainer. You know that because we yep. talk about that. Uh, Kerry Newhoff has some some good guests on his. Um Frank Turek has one. Uh Jay Warner Wallace has one. I listen to Joe Rogan, but he's not really a podcast. I guess he's
1: Well, he's a podcast. Yeah, but he's like I, the top rated podcast. I know, but
0: I I watch him on, on YouTube <laughs> all the time. And then for fun, I watch Sasquatch Chronicles. I listen oh, to that you. one. I know you guys don't make fun of me for that, but that's entertainment for me. So those are the ones that I find very edifying at this point. Thanks for asking that. Every- really, I could feel the care just oozing. It's <laughs> yeah. so it's so authentic too.
1: Yeah. The well, the Sasquatch. I'm just I'm really excited for you to you know. The hey, that's Northwest a future. Is a great that's place. A Future a future podcast for us. Yeah. Well, I don't know if us is so much as you. That that sounds like a one. Maybe we'll show. get a guest. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe you can interview Sasquatch
0: himself, herself? I, 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 yeah, it could be him, her. Who knows? We'll, we'll have, <laughs> down the road, we'll talk about that. Deep philosophical conversation there, I'm sure. All right. Let's get
1: into, uh, thanks. thanks uh, always looking to see what you're listening to, what you're learning from, um, especially as we talk about this morality issue, because I think a lot of voices speak out on this. Sure. Um, across the spectrum, lots of input, lots of thoughts. Let's kind of help, help our listeners sift through some of that. Uh, let's talk first about why is it so important or why is it necessary for us to be able to declare A is right and B is wrong or A is wrong and B is right. Why do we need to be able to say those things?
0: Well, the short answer would be if you're in a world that has no objective moral standard, then anything goes and everything goes and it's chaotic. But the the example I like to use is one that I was taught uh, and that was, and I forgot by whom, so it's it's not uh, unique to me. But a stop sign, I don't know if you've ever been at a stop sign and all of a sudden, somehow under your peripheral vision, the person next to you in the next lane, maybe they go forward and you're not sure if you're going backwards and they're going forward, but you're kind of in that zone like, okay, something's not right here. And what you'll usually do is you look off to your passenger side and look for something you know that doesn't change, a reference point like a tree. You go, oh, okay, she's moving backwards or Mm -hmm. I'm moving forward, I didn't realize that. And I think that that's the way I look at society without uh, objective moral standards, that the logical conclusion then is you're simply going to have a generation of people or several generations who have no conscience and then are simply ultimately cruel to one another. I mean, if you think about it, and maybe some people listening are into history, you might remember Hitler at one of his uh camps where he would exterminate the Jewish culture and peoples had a sign that said he wanted to raise the next generation of young boys to be people void of a conscience Mm -hmm. and simply cruel. And I can't help but believe when you don't have an objective moral standard, you have no real uh, reference point in life, that's ultimately and logically where you're going to end. Uh, when people say, well, I don't think there needs to be a right or wrong, they certainly believe they need some objective moral standard when their teacher gives them a C Mm -hmm. and they believe they deserved an A. Suddenly, suddenly there needs to be a standard. But in our personal lives so often, it's because of our sinful nature, we're tempted just to go ahead and make up the rules as we go along and we think that'll work. But that doesn't work for all of life. If there's not an objective moral standard, you're going to have chaos. And that's the logical conclusion.
1: So if that's like the the conclusion of no objective morality. and why do so many people pursue eradicating objective reality? what's the what's the motivation from what you can see behind it?
0: Well, just looking at my own sinful brokenness. Um, If there's no moral standard out there, then I don't feel guilty and I can kind of make up the rules as I want. And by nature, we all want to be our own little god and goddesses. And that's just, it just feeds our, our sinful nature, whether it's believing you can somehow earn your way to heaven or earned your way to whatever you believe is after this life, if you're not a Jesus follower. But certainly it's a lot easier for me to live my life knowing that I can just make up the rules as I go along. Now, you, now, you honestly, we all know that doesn't work practically, doesn't work well in relationships. <laughs> doesn't work well for the IRS, Mm -hmm. doesn't work well for your employment, and it certainly doesn't work in academia. Necessarily, mm-hmm. so it's just it's just a lot easier life. We all want to be a little god, and yeah. that's not going to happen.
1: And I think you, the the most genuine people who are pursuing that eradication of moral objectivity, are pretty open about that. I think of Richard Dawkins, but Aldous Huxley, that the that author, famed atheist. I mean, he even said, "I'm trying to kill God so that I can pursue my own sure, yeah." And, yeah, and desires. The, at least he's honest. Yeah, yeah, he's just being upfront yeah. with uh, his pursuits. Now, the opposite of moral ambiguity or eradication of moral objectivity can be Jesus followers can fall into some traps in trying to counteract or counterbalance that perspective. What traps have you seen or what dangers have you seen Jesus followers falling into when it comes to trying to lay out moral code?
0: Well, there's a, there's a couple of things. First of all, I think we have to go into our life as Jesus followers and 21st century ambassadors for Jesus, knowing that you're going to get persecuted. I mean, Jesus did promise that in Matthew 10, he talks about the fact that if they, you know, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you and, and you need to put me first. And that's going to be painful, maybe even in your own family sometimes. So I think that's one of them you have to do. The other is I, I think as Jesus followers, we not, we need to make sure that, that we are really prepared to share our faith. Yes, more is caught than taught. And that's why our actions or our our habits are important because people watch. Mm -hmm. Because people can say anything today. And and because of a number of televangelists through the last couple decades, uh, religion, especially Christianity, has often received kind of a sour note. But the, the big thing I think Christians need to do is be transparent about your faith and be open about your brokenness. And be prepared to ask the question or answer the question as you and I have talked about several times. What do you say to the person that says, well, I, I can't, I can't believe in a God when there's so many people following him who are hypocrites. Yeah. And that's something I think every person listening needs to understand how to answer. Cause when I was first a pastor, it used to stump me and I used to kind of think through, okay, well, what do you mean that? I'd, I'd always use the, the trite response. Well, yeah, you're right. Church is full of hypocrites and there's room for one more. Yeah. So you yeah, can that front pew is open for you. Buddy. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, first of all, hypocrisy is not when someone fails to meet your personal expectations of perfection. It's not catching someone who claims to be a Jesus follower doing something that Jesus would say was wrong, is sinful. It's not pointing to the failures of other people who uh, believe the Bible. If that makes a person a hypocrite, then I'm probably the chief of them because that certainly has been me. The opposite of hypocrisy is not perfection. I try to communicate that to people. The opposite of hypocrisy is spiritual authenticity. Say that again. Okay. The, the the opposite of hypocrisy is not perfection. The opposite of hypocrisy is spiritual authenticity. Hmm. So uh, the life of a Jesus follower isn't pretending that you always have it all together. If anything, it's admitting that you don't have it all together at all. That you need to be rescued from your daily problems as well as the big eternal one that every single person has. If it's if you're going to be in the Jesus camp, then you got to understand it's okay not to be okay. Yeah. And it's the idea that you don't call, you don't make sin or take sin lightly, but you understand with Christians who've been bought by Jesus and understand what he's done for them, it's about direction, not perfection. And so you need to be ready to say something about that. Uh, you know, I think Christians need to understand that they're just people who are in desperate need of forgiveness and grace. It's not having your act all together. It's understanding this part of transformation by the Spirit's power. The the best way I've, I've, I'd like to explain this is when people look at Christians, we don't get it right. And we don't, I don't. Dan, I've known you yeah, for a little while. Yeah. You <laughs> certainly don't. Just so the listeners are sure of that. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't get yeah. it li- at all. But. Not any specifics here, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'll be for the next one with the Sasquatch one. Yeah, i are bringing that you. into it for you. Um, but, you know, it's, there are a lot of Christians walking around and they're trying to live for Jesus because they know that he died for them. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's the motivation. But often, <laughs> we're kind of like high school kids. I don't know if you played music in high school and weren't part of a band. I was. Okay. Yeah. So we were often like high school kids in a garage band uh, attempting to perform REO or, or Me- Metallica or 21 Pilots. Don't judge the composer or the music by the performance.
1: I appreciate that you brought 21 Pilots in there, just bring a little... I'd, I'd, ask <laughs> <laughs> I'd ask my sons.
0: I'd ask my sons because I would have brought the Stones in and you know, Grand Funk Railroad and all those people in as well. But you know, in the bigger picture, our failure of living for Jesus has nothing to do with Jesus. And, and I think you have to be prepared to say some of those things or at least have a good grasp of them because so often that kind of shuts the conversation down and Christians don't know how yeah, to respond. Yeah. yeah. So maybe, maybe that's helpful, but that's, those are the pitfalls. One, expect it to show up. You're going to be persecuted if you live your faith. Now, you don't have to be obnoxious about it. Yeah. But in our culture, as you said before, if you just live your faith by the choices you try to make and how you try to treat people and so on, don't worry. Your Christianity will come shining through in a culture that's very dark spiritually.
1: Yeah, and I think that that obnoxious, at least for me, is probably one of my biggest fears. I don't want to be the labeled the Bible thumper or the you know the holier than thou, and I allow that fear to push me into the sideline, and, and and I don't speak up at all, or I don't share anything at all. And I think there's a there's a middle ground there, not to be the Bible thumper, but also not to be the the wilting flower.
0: Right. I, the way I kind of look at it is, um, you don't want to kick the door down. To have a conversation about Jesus. But as soon as that door is opened up, you want to be prepared to take a step through. Sure, And a lot of times you can be obnoxious. I can walk up to someone and, and you know, it's the middle of a conversation and say, you know, Jesus calls it a sin and and, and, yeah, and then you yeah. can take that wrong approach. Because Jesus never did that. He didn't take that wrong approach. And he certainly called sin a sin yeah. and came to die for it. But it's the other thing of when someone brings something up, in using the questions we always talk about throughout this podcast, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Um uh, how did you come to that conclusion? And then, then the door is open. You're having a conversation. You're getting to know a little about the person. And then maybe saying, well, have you ever considered And then you bring your Christianity through yeah. as opposed to using it as a hammer, knocking it off the, the handle of the door you're now kicking in.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think being a genuine, that spiritual authenticity that you talk is having the good of the other person, their their eternal good as your prime directive, not their moral adherence. You're not trying to make a good person. You're trying to make a, you're trying to share Jesus, trying to make a Jesus follower. And that gets, me- that's messy. A Jesus follower is messy. It's yeah. the, it's the legalistic. It's the, here are the right rules. Here are the 150 things you have to do. That's neat. That's tidy. But that's not Jesus follower. That's, those are two different things.
0: Right. Right. Absolutely.
1: I've heard this a couple of times, John. I, I a lot of times I read it we all I'll hear it, especially come election season, which we're can't which we're always in. I can't believe it's 2019. And we're talking about the 2020 presidential election, but anyway, I hear people tell Jesus followers, "Don't bring your morality into the public sphere. Don't bring it into the public forum. We don't want to talk about it. It has no role in in politics or in policy." has no role in the marketplace. Don't bring that. Keep it at home. What? How do you answer that? How do you respond?
0: I would simply say, are you going to do the same with yours? Now, that could be the snide way. <laughs> Probably not the most loving way. But that might be the Bible-thumping way. That might be the Bible-thumping <laughs> way, yeah. But, but I, I would simply say, we are called by Jesus to live our faith and be the light of the world. That's fine. And so, obviously, we're going to live our faith. It's not like a private thing. And plus, you can talk to that person and say, have you ever considered the fact that maybe your religion is that of atheism? Mm-hmm. You're certainly not keeping your wants, your beliefs silent and out of the public square. Yeah. It, it's meant to be lived out loud. It's a lived out loud faith. And so I, I tell people, you know, go ahead and live your faith. Just live it just as they are, as I often will say. The atheist lives his faith. The agnostic lives his faith. And uh, the person who doesn't believe that there's a God or is believes in um, secular moralism, uh, then that person also believes the very same thing. And they're trying to force what they believe on you. So the difference with the Jesus follower, hopefully, is we're not trying to force what we believe on you. We'll certainly be willing to share. And the reason why we believe it's true and the person behind it. That's a lot different than me saying if you don't agree with me I'm going to do X to you. Yeah. That's not a Jesus follower. Now, yeah. probably in history have Jesus followers sometimes done cruel things in the name of Jesus. Absolutely. They sure have. Even today have Christians done dumb things and and said things in the name of Jesus that aren't Jesus-like at all or Jesus approved. Yeah. Yes, we have, yeah. and that's wrong. Period. Yeah. So,
1: Yeah, and that's <clears throat> I think for the Jesus follower to hear that permission, you got to live it. If, If you're living your faith only behind closed doors, you're not living your faith. It's, well, yeah. it's got to be.
0: Awkward. How do you influence people for Jesus if you don't live your faith in front of them? And I always say, how do you live your faith for Jesus and influence or, uh, and influence people for Jesus if you don't have any friends who aren't Jesus followers? Yeah. I hope every one of our listeners has five or ten friends. Now that doesn't mean you run out right now and get five or ten of the most pagan people you know, mm-hmm. but it's very likely you have some great moral people, moral and air quotes, perhaps that are around you. And great people, great workers, great students, great coaches, great people, great friends who right now are spiritually far from Jesus. Yeah. They need you. There's a reason Jesus has had them cross paths with you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's goes back to our purpose conversation. Right. Right. You are you have a unique set of influences, of networks that God has suited you for, He's called you into to live that faith. And part of that faith is I have this moral, these moral objectives, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't keep them perfectly. That goes back to your hypocrisy. I don't keep them perfectly, but I don't need to. That's why Jesus. So That's far. correct. I'm not calling you to look at me. Yeah, I'm. I'm telling you. To look I don't at need Jesus. to
0: be Jesus. One Jesus was enough. Yeah, exactly yeah.
1: Right. Let's tie some some connections here. Speaking of purpose, we've we our last couple podcasts have been on origin and on purpose. How do those two ideas? impact morality where, how i establish yeah. ra- morality and let's talk about not just the jesus follower but maybe an atheist or agnostic sure, or humanistic sure. like where does that where does that kind of play out when that rubber hits the road
0: right now you're probably seeing three major camps or belief systems or systems themselves out in our culture and especially in academia right now concerning where you get your objective trans or transparent or transcendent i should say moral laws uh, and some would say, here's one of them. They say you get it from your genetic coding. It's genetic okay. evolution. So it's
1: like born into you where right. it's,
0: you yeah. say, some people will say we're 99.999% all the same. Therefore, uh, if we have human traits that are allegedly the same, so why wouldn't our moral traits also be handed down in our genetic coding? And they try to talk about those, those truths being all part of the evolutionary process. There's a lot of problems with that. One of which is uh, who's to say that every person had the same evolutionary pathway? Many people didn't. What do you do when you have two cultures that behave in different matters? How, how do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, you can have one that had, does one thing and one does another. Who adjudicates that when you have people that determine, they say, well, that's the way I was coded. That's the way I was born. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is we don't blame people for the way they were born necessarily in the sense we don't say, Oh, you were, you were born a brunette mm-hmm. or you're born with, uh, Blue eyes, or for your example, you know, you're a ginger. My son's always told me gingers have no souls. So, you know, but you've done all right. And then I'm follically challenged. Okay. Thank you for that. I'm follically challenged. So, you know, it's, it's, we don't blame people for those characteristics. Yeah. But even if you, even if you would say, okay, even my most skeptical friend, let's say he's right. And he says, yeah, we're merely the product of our own genetic coding. We still have to account for the encoding. Yeah. Uh, The the guy, maybe you've read him, Stephen uh, C. Myers, he's probably the best known guy for the whole intelligent design, says, there's not a single example in in all of history in the universe in which information has come from nothing other than an intelligent source. If our genetic coding really contains information about moral truth, we still have to ask the fundamental question, what intelligent source provided the code? All codes require encoders. So that you'll hear that on college campuses a lot. Well, it's just part of genetic evolution. Or you'll hear this. uh, All of our moral truths are really cultural agreement. All of them kind of, it's just cultures just decide what is true. It's kind of like uh, might rules, the the majority rules. Now, you have trouble if you have two different cultures because in some cultures, they believe you should love your neighbor. Other cultures believe you should eat him. (laughs) You know, where do you come down on that matter because it could be a little important for you if you're a neighbor. But they talk a lot of times about objective morality being shared morality. That's kind of the hot phrase right now. It's shared morality that the majority might makes right. We hear all of that, but that doesn't really work at all. You might remember back in World War II and from history class and I'm not that old to know that just I saw I saw you light up like that like I didn't throw you a softball. I'm not touching ball. that. One. Yeah, I think that's good for you. But in the Nuremberg trials what happens is some of the attorneys and lawyers trying to uh, go ahead and uh, defend what the Nazi people did at the concentration camps especially the soldiers simply said, "Well, listen, you can't charge those men with that because uh these men shouldn't be judged for their actions because they were doing what was actually morally acceptable in the nation at yeah. that time of war. They argued that their supervisors encouraged that kind of behavior. In fact, to do otherwise would have defied their their culture and their ideology. So, in their in their moral environment, this behavior was considered shared morality. Yeah. And of course, back then, even our one of our Supreme Court people, I believe his name was Jackson, said such moral relativism. You know, the law is not above the law. You yeah. can't do that. So. The encoding idea doesn't work. And for objective, uh, moral truths, the cultural agreement doesn't. But the one that a lot of our listeners, if they're young and especially in into science has probably heard is one that's propagated a lot by Sam Harris today. Mm-hmm. And that says that all of our moral truths come from for human flourishing, the, the mm-hmm. consequences of human flourishing, which means he just believes good and bad, all is determined on how a human being or the species, he would say, flourishes. Mm -hmm. He he always says it's akin to a game of chess. Some moves are good, some moves are bad. But if you ultimately win the game, then that's the good move. You want to have more of the good ones than bad ones. That you just want to help well the well-being of conscious creatures, he often says in his book. But that doesn't, you know that doesn't really work. He's really talking about the survival of the fittest, which natural selection is really all about. But once you go from um, survival of the fittest to maybe the best survival, now you've done something else, or what some have called from merely survival to a particular worthy survival, now you've got something else. Harris recognized in his books that survival as a singular goal can often lead to all kinds of of morality that's not very good at all. I
1: I mean, I think of eugenics. I think, you know, this whole LGBT question. Well, what's good for the individual really gets pitted against what's good for the human flourishing as a species.
0: It's it's one thing if you're talking about survival. Okay. But if you're talking about the flourishing of, of humanity, now you've injected really, um, a number of virtues and priorities and you've employed moral principles because what, why, why is, why is flourishing good? Well, who said that's good? And so ultimately. And what does
1: flourishing mean? Yeah. And who's flourishing? A, yeah. There a, a, are things like the caste system or the feudal right, system right. that some flourished, many right. did not. So and, how do you,
0: and how, how do you define flourishing? There yeah. has to be a good and a bad in there. He's really, he's really borrowing, uh, kind of a pre-existent objective moral notions about worth and, and value and sometimes purpose while still holding in his other hand the worldview that argues against pre-existing Moral notions. Yeah. There's he, some
1: cognitive dissonance. Yeah, that comes there from. is. Yeah. And,
0: and I, I believe in one of his books toward the end, I think it's the second page toward the end of one of his books he does even acknowledge that. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense. So you're going to mostly see people say it's either in your genetic coding. It's just part of the social or the uh, shared morality, or you're going to say, well, it's, let's all do whatever's best for human flourishing. And none of those work. None of those work because they all end up either allowing you to do whatever you want, or they simply borrow from something they believe doesn't exist, and that's an objective moral standard.
1: I want to make this a little bit more personal. We've been talking about Sam Harris, some of these lofty thinkers, but I've spent time with Jesus followers, and I know you have too, that there's there's a struggle that goes on inside of themselves where an objective morality that they find in the pages of Scripture does not conform to an objective morality that they would like to have that they think is right. How does a Jesus follower bring those two together? Is it a, is it a, just something that we have to come to grips with, that there's two different things? Uh, I know some of the challenges that people have and some of the things that they've tried to, tried to, the roads they've tried to go down. How do you bring those two together?
0: I would think most of us would believe, at least you and I do and others do as well, that objective moral standards is God's truth. And God's truth doesn't have a shelf life. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if God called something sin, Back in the Old Testament it was a sin in the 1950s too. Mm-hmm. Is a sin today. When in your in your description of the, the question, you talked about well, when we as Jesus followers struggle with something we may not like, we've already then become subjective. And once we start doing that, you water down truth, and then suddenly you have subjective morals, and then there is no truth really, or truth is what you make it to be. We ultimately believe in the one who's a holy, perfect God who does not shift like does not change like shifting shadows. And I think that's that's. That is heart and soul of what Christianity is about. We have a God who loved us enough to send his son, but a God who sent his son because sin is always sin, and right is always right, and wrong is always wrong. Truth in and of itself is going to be exclusive and narrow. Mm -hmm. It's not going to change over time. and uh, Because to be frank, we as human beings haven't changed one bit. People go, oh, we've gotten so much more sophisticated. We've got iPhones now, and we're technologically advanced, and we've got Uber, and we've got you name it, we got it. Well, that might all be true and that's all window dressing because we're still the same people who are selfish by nature, fallen by nature. We lust, we steal, we believe we're the little gods and goddesses of our lives. It really hasn't changed, just our surroundings have. And so God's truth in the beginning is going to be truth for us today no matter how we dress.
1: So, how does, if I could push back on that just a little bit, because I've heard people say, well, the Old Testament, you look in Leviticus and there's a law against eating shellfish. You eat shrimp. There's a law against bringing different materials together for cloth, for a shirt or pants. We do that all the time. We have 60% of this for you. So, there's, uh, flesh that out a little bit more. What, how does somebody look at the Bible and say, Look, God God said, eradicate this people. Or he said, don't have these kinds of relationships. He said, don't uh, cook a, a goat in its mother's milk. Well, we're not held by those moral standards, anymore, right? Or, well, un- I,
0: I, I don't I. know that we call those moral standards. We would call those the... Um... Regulations that flow from those moral standards, in some cases, the punishments from, uh, from breaking those moral standards. Remember, in the Old Testament, you need to keep it in the big picture of God sending a savior to save the world that was corrupted by sin and mm-hmm. damaged and, and, and destroyed by sin in that sense. And so God says, I'm going to choose a people and I got to keep these people, uh, unto myself so that, because humanly speaking, I'm sending a savior through them. Well, I, I've got to make sure they look differently and act differently and govern themselves differently than the nations around them so that they will not be lost as my people, and thus my line of the Savior gone and and the world left without a rescuer. So he gives them different ways to eat and different ways to dress and different ways to worship, all in a way to make them his special, distinct people. He also gave them a chance in that way to also to worship God and put him first. In the process, God is taking people who are in a pagan world and slowly moving them toward um Understanding he's the true God with all grace, truth, and justice. All of those things. Now, understand in all of that, there was still God's moral law where he still said life is life. You can't just take life willy-nilly. Adultery is adultery. Now, he may have had in the Old Testament certain ways you carried out punishment for that law. Like if you got caught in adultery, you were stoned to death. When Jesus comes, he had fulfilled all of those laws perfectly. But God's moral law is still there. We're no longer living in a theocracy that they had in the Old Testament, meaning it was governed by God, okay. right? Um, so those the way God had actually carried out some of his laws and the punishments of those laws were very much specific just for God's Old Testament people, Israel, who were living underneath God's control, literally, a theocracy. When Jesus comes, he fulfills, he's the fulfillment. Those were all like big arrows pointing to Jesus, mm-hmm. as it says in Colossians 2. So Jesus comes And he still reiterates all those moral laws, doesn't he? In fact, he goes even a step further as he includes the heart, not just the actions. You've heard that it's been said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, don't even lust. Uh, You've heard that it's been said, don't murder, but I tell you, anybody who gets angry with his brother is is a murderer. So Jesus doesn't do away with those moral laws. In fact, he even brings them and applies them in a, a much deeper way on the inside of us because that's who we are. Our, our sin starts in our head and our hearts, so to speak, and then we act it out. So he doesn't throw it away. And uh, it gives you the idea why, it, yes, it was carried out differently, and maybe some of the laws are carried out in the Old Testament differently, but that was specific to God's people Israel. Yeah. I don't know if that helps.
1: No, that does. And to recognize, I like how you put it into that whole story that really centers on Jesus. Because not only did he come to reiterate, but he came to fulfill. He came to say, I have kept all of these laws. All the requirements of the Old Testament are fulfilled to me. The things I pointed out. Now you are free to live under God's moral law, his objective moral standards, under compulsion to live a life that gives him right. honor, praise. Your gospel motivation. Yep. yep you're, Absolutely. You're thankful for what he's done. All right. Let's bring this full circle. Let's end where we started. Um, Talking about our culture that is really struggling with right and wrong, I think, Christians for many decades now. Have tried to ensure moral adherence by passing a law. Does that work? Is that a Christian's objective? Like, should we? Should Christians be up in arms that LGBT issues are going the way, or, or abortion laws are the way? That, how does a Christian? How should a Christian feel? A Jesus follower feel about legislating morality?
0: Well, we shouldn't do it. We should not legislate morality. That that doesn't work. I mean, it works for a while. Imagine your children. You'd rather have your children follow you and obey you because they know that you love them dearly and care for them, and they love you back. Uh, yes, you can can continue to get your children to do something if you punish them again and again, but you're going to have to swing that punishment hammer, so to speak, right? Yeah. Uh, a, a bunch of different times. And that's just, that's just foolish. I, I always say as Christians, we want to be the best stewards of what God has given us. And part of that's the government. A lot of us love to sit back and complain about our government instead of be involved <laughs> in it. Yeah and uh And pray for those people, as the Bible says, who are involved in in serving, and God does use people, even people we think we would never want to sit in the same chair with yeah. or pew with it in a worship service. so I, I always do it through all through the context of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This place is not my home; this country is a great country; it's a wonderful blessing that God has given uh for us. But it's not perfect and it's not going to be made perfect by if I get the right number of judges on the Supreme Court. And if I can just be the mayor of the city, then somehow I'm going to bring a heaven on earth. That's not our role. Our role here is to tell people... Who someday is going to bring heaven to them when he comes again one final time. Mm -hmm. So I I, I would say this. The law never changes a heart. The gospel always changes a heart. Now the law, in its first sense, a mirror shows us our sin, tells us why we need to be saved, why we need to be rescued. The law certainly shows us right and wrong, what God considers right or wrong by his standard, not mine, not yours, but by his. So I, I would simply say, as, as citizens who look around and go, boy, Looks like our, our world's going to hell in a handbasket. First, get some perspective. Yeah, it's, it's not great. We have a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. At this point, we certainly don't have anybody like Caesar in Jesus' day. Right. Right. You know, and as far as I know, they're not throwing some of the kids in our children's program to the lions, mm-hmm. at least not yet. Mm-hmm. So it can get it's worse. It's been worse. It's been worse. It's been, and yeah. for our brothers and sisters in China. Yeah. Or yeah. in Africa. Central. Um- Asia, yeah, yeah, you know, it, it is bad. They would tell you, "Yeah, it's it's pretty bad right now." But just again, you don't legislate people's hearts. You only bring the gospel to them, and God changes their hearts. And then some of they use His law as a way to thank God and serve mm-hmm. other people in His name.
1: Man, that's great. And I'm, I'm really glad that you our listeners were able to tune in today as John and I talked about uh, the really important topics around morality what a what an important thing especially in our day to be anchored in that uh, in what God has to say on that it's certainly tricky gr- tricky to navigate and Jesus follower really wants to be to get it right when it comes to this discussion and I hope this conversation that John and I have had today uh, has helped you answer some of those questions talk about some of those things uh, open up that conversation, and if this podcast has helped you, maybe you'll go back and listen to our first seven episodes. Uh, subscribe, make sure you're up to date with podcasts as they come out, episodes as they come out, and we'd certainly love to hear your stories. Especially if this podcast has helped you, have that conversation. Tell us, tell us about that. Uh, how did that go? What, what did that conversation look like? Uh, as you listen to When Fear Rains, so we love having you. And hopefully today, we've helped you live your faith in a secular world
0: thank you for joining us as we wrap up our series on the fundamental questions of the human experience. Our next episode, discussing the question of destiny. If you're new to the show, please download our past episodes and subscribe to make sure you get our newest content as it becomes available. We'll see you next time on When Fear Reigns.